Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This is episode 91 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Tony Weaver and Karen Olson Weaver of Olson Weaver Lighting Design about outdoor lighting. They offer tips and tricks, do's and don'ts, and you'll especially want to pay attention to a little trick of how to make a boring fence seem more dramatic. Also in this episode, our plant profile is on winter aconite, and I share some local native plant resources as well as some upcoming events. This episode, I'm joined by the principals of Olson Weaver, Karen and Tony Olson Weaver, and they are lighting designers that service the DC, Virginia, and Maryland region based out of Arlington, Virginia. Welcome, Karen and Tony. Hey, Kathy, good to be here. Hey, Kathy. Nice to uh, nice to be with you. Great to have you both. So we're talking in kind of late winter season and days are starting to get longer, but it still seems like the sun drops too quickly, right, these days in the garden and you don't get to enjoy it as much as you'd like to. So we'll talk all about outdoor landscape lighting, how you can uh, light up different aspects of your home and garden to enjoy it farther into the evening time and maybe other concepts, right? Maybe lighting can highlight architecture, can highlight different features, can create drama, can create a mood. So we'll talk all about that today. But first, let's talk about Olson Weaver LLC. And Karen, I want to start with you. And how did you start this company? Was this your baby, your brainchild? Well, yeah, I guess I would say that. I was um, actually studying landscape design about 15 or 16 years ago, I think, and became aware of the concept of landscape lighting. And I was intrigued by that. I've always been interested in lighting. And so it seemed like a really good combination of two interests of mine. So decided to do landscape lighting rather than landscape design. And was there much competition at that point? Well, I would say there were a couple of big companies around, um, but it really was still kind of a fledgling industry. So uh, we've kind of, and and I've kind of fashioned this company from the start as being a niche company that is uh, nimble and can quickly into new technologies and to be able to handle our clients on a very personal level and to maintain relationships throughout the process of, of designing, installing, lighting, and then you know, as the garden grows and as the family grows and moves to new houses. So that would be kind of an evolution of the garden. Like you wouldn't start out with your entire lighting design done all at once. You could do piecemeal, so to speak. Well, sure. That's kind of the beauty of low voltage landscape lighting is uh, before then we just were were doing 120 volt and uh, it's difficult to move that stuff around. So with low voltage, you can uh, go in the ground shallower and as the garden grows, you can add fixtures as your garden changes or you lose a tree, you can move fixtures around. So it it is really something that's flexible and can be added to. When did Tony join the firm? 
Yeah, so I joined, I guess, about seven, eight years ago. It's hard to remember now. And uh, prior to that, I had worked out in California, I guess, to go all the way back. I uh, had originally studied business and uh, foreign affairs at UVA. I got a bachelor's degree in foreign affairs and then a master's in business. Uh, After school, I went out uh, and worked in uh, Northern California for some time at a startup and then founded a medical device startup in Tennessee. After that, I came and joined the family business with Karen here, my mother, and we have been working together ever since. And I find that a common thing in the horticultural industry of family businesses or multi-generational businesses. Um, How is it working mother-son, Karen and Tony? Maybe I'll start for Karen's point of view. Well, I think it's worked out really well. Uh, Tony's an easy person to get along with. We... um, it was probably a little bit difficult at the start just to kind of uh, learn a new role, you know, rather than parent to a child. It was, you have to learn to to speak to your partner as an adult. And I think that we've learned that well and we get along really, it, things go uh, pretty smoothly now, I, I think. So, Good to hear. yeah, it's been a joy. It's been a joy working with Tony. He's a great person to work with. Yeah. Any thoughts, Tony? Yeah, I, I think I agree with most of that sentiment. I mean, just it's been a very positive experience. And of course, in the early stages of any sort of working relationship, it uh, takes some time for each person to kind of figure out uh, what they do best and how people are going to work well together. And over time, we've just really been able to, um, to develop and grow our partnership. And I think that's partially because we both have very... Uh, very specialized skill sets. I studied business and I have bring that background and entrepreneurship to the table. And Karen, of course, studied horticulture and is, of course, an entrepreneur. So having those clear, defined different skill sets, I think really makes for a very positive partnership, particularly because both people bring uh, different things to the table and uh, we've really been able to thrive through this partnership. That's great to hear. And so beside the two of you, do you have other employees? We do. We do. We have a fantastic installation team, uh, installation manager, and a number of crews. Currently, I think we are at, or we are at three uh, different vans and trucks and whatnot. Uh, we also have a uh, marketing uh, representative who handles a lot of our social media, digital, email marketing, and, and coordinates events and that kind of uh, that kind of thing. And we're currently uh, expanding, and so we're looking to hire a, uh, a sales, an assistant sales representative, as well as a senior sales representative. But, you know, it's a very challenging labor market. So, you know, we've got, we've got our ads up, and we're, we're doing interviews and whatnot, but and we're looking forward to finding the right person and bringing another person onto the team. And of course, we have uh, additional administrative help uh, and assistance associates who help with the uh, the accounting, the bookkeeping, uh, some basic administrative tasks. So yeah, it's a it's been very uh, we've we've grown uh, incrementally, but uh, in such a way that we've been able to keep up and really uh, exceed the expectations of customers as we grow. And um, we have been fortunate enough to grow at about a 30% rate a year. It must 
must be for the entire time that yeah I've been here in seven years. And so that's really been uh, positive for us. And we've just been fortunate with the uh, the people who you know are part of our team in that they've been able to help us deliver and continue to provide the high quality product that uh, that our customers are used to. And how do customers find you? Do they go through a landscape designer or architect? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. And it's it's something that is evolving. And so I'll speak a little bit to kind of the traditional way that our clients have found us. And then I'll tell you how that's changed a little bit over the years and kind of where we're going. And so traditionally, uh, it's been kind of very kind of peer-to-peer uh, network driven where you know somebody and you know they happen to do landscape lighting and then you bring on clients and then they refer others to you and that's just kind of how you grow but then as things become more sophisticated you know we started to bring more and more clients through other larger projects that were largely driven by landscape architects landscape designers landscape contractors and so we now um, have active relationships this with many many uh, of those industry professionals who will bring us, you know, five, six, uh, seven jobs plus a year. And so that's where a lot of our projects come from. And to speak a little bit to, you know, where it's going, a lot of where it's going is more kind of direct to the client. Uh, many of our customers are now kind of getting into the the stage where they, they're very familiar with uh, social media. They're very familiar with Google, almost Everybody throws a quick Google search in when they're uh, when they're reviewing a contractor, and so more and more we see clients coming through social media, and we've got a fantastic social media expert who handles a lot of that for us. We see a lot of folks coming in through you know just direct Google search SEO. You know that's something that we see more and more, and so we're really at the forefront of that, and you know keeping both our uh, social media and our web page up and running and just actively pursuing that kind of direct-to-client to uh, lead source. Excellent. Let's move on to some of the design side of the business and the more fun things, I think, to talk about, at least for me, are the lighting installations you have done. Maybe we can walk through some of the jobs and verbally point out some of the great lighting because obviously listening to a podcast might not be able to see the beautiful photos or visit it in person, but I think we can paint the picture for them. So some of your installations or notable clients have been the Columbia Country Club, the Embassy of Finland, Chrysler Museum of Art, and Hillwood Museum and Estates. So let's start with maybe Hillwood. Uh, What type of work did you do there? And that's someplace that is open to the public as a garden that people can access in Washington, D.C. Yeah. First, I'd like to say Hillwood is such a fantastic area. So, I mean, if if your listeners are ever around, I mean, just they can get out there and just uh, tour uh, the museum and the grounds. Be sure to do it because it's just such a great place. Uh, The work that we did there uh, was the lighting of an exhibition of sculptures. Phil Haas did a uh, a large sculptural exhibition and we came in and provided the lighting for that. So it was super fun. Uh, His sculptures are just really, really incredible. These huge depictions of uh, certain classical uh, pieces of art that he has done in very large scale. So we had a great time. Uh, We got to work directly with the artist a little bit and uh, everybody really enjoyed the experience. Karen, do you have a favorite of one of those projects we just discussed that you might want to describe? Maybe the Embassy of Finland? 
Well, actually, uh, that was one of Tony's projects. Mm -hmm. uh, Tony, uh, Tony's a, a little bit modest. He does he does bring so much to our business uh, through business management, but he's become a very good designer his own right, and it's kind of a family thing. Most of uh, most of my family is a designer in one way or the other, and and as are my three children and their spouses. And uh, so Tony did the work at the Finland Embassy, one that I'm very proud of, and that was kind of rather early on in in the me and Tony days is when we did the Columbia be a country club. This was brought to us by a designer that you may remember, Florence Eberts. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's done some beautiful, beautiful gardens. Uh, she's now it retired in her mid-80s. I think she retired last year, maybe, but uh, very active throughout her lifetime. And uh, so she had a, a really cool concept for the Columbia Country Club at their, now I'm not a big golfer, so you know, the last par where, where you finish up the game, which is right at the clubhouse. And she wanted to create a terrace there for you know, lunching and activities and things and to watch that very last, you know, hold the people shoot. Sorry, my golf is terrible. But she designed a very, an amazing serpentine seat wall, I guess I would say, that had some very beautiful curves, a big a giant S curve that kind of contained this terrace area for entertaining. And we put a, a beautiful LED fixture in there that could run along that curve, just under the capstone of that curve. So when you're sitting up in the clubhouse looking down at the terrace, you see that beautiful S curve. And it just became so popular there at the club that either they brought their outdoor dining out there. This is before COVID. And uh, and it really, I think, brought a lot of uh, new energy and vitality to the club because uh, younger people just really were into that kind of a, a, of a newer lighting scene. So I think that we were kind of early on in that type of, of LED linear lighting in Washington. And that has to be, uh, you know, a, a very a, a super example. I just love that project. And I love working with Florence. Interesting. So are most of your clients private residences or public or is it a mix? Primarily, I would say we're about 80% residential, 80 to 90 really. And then uh, the other 10 to 20 is commercial. And so uh, the majority is residential. And the majority of our, the properties that we uh, typically work at are in Northern Arlington, Chevy Chase, uh, Maryland, D.C., Northwest D.C., kind of those general areas, Potomac, Virginia. And sometimes we'll extend further outside of the Beltway for, uh, for special clients, typically clients who we've already worked with in the past who have residences in those areas I just mentioned, but also may have an estate uh, in the Plains or, or somewhere a little bit further out. And when a client starts a project with you, are there objectives for safety, lighting, for adding a dramatic effect? What are their usual requests when they start off? Yeah, every client is different, you know, so all of the above can can certainly be the case in certain scenarios. Uh, we work very closely, usually with a landscape designer who has brought in a project, so we'll review their designs, and then we will mark those designs up with a specific uh, lighting plan. We'll meet with both the client and the uh, landscape designer or architect so that we can specifically kind of really get a sense and feel for what uh, both the, the landscape architect or designer kind of envisions so that we can be sure that our lighting plan is in line with that overall vision, but also uh, really co to consult the client and get a really good idea of what they want and what they are looking for in their landscape lighting while it still fits well into the overall landscape design and is aesthetically pleasing. 
And I might be asking a bit of a cheeky question here, Tony or Karen, and see what you uh, react to this. Maybe we'll start with Karen. Do you have any pet peeves when you see landscape lighting installations that you did not do? Well, I don't know if I have pet peeves. The fact is, I know a lot of the other landscape lighting companies in the area, and we have a pretty good relationship with them. I can spot their work, kind of like you can spot the work of a, of a designer. They've got their own style. So I can spot their work, and I can tell the difference between a company that specializes in lighting and a company that maybe is a generalist, uh, a lighting specialist who will have a, a better grade of fixtures, I think, that they might have added something special to the project beyond, I guess, in the landscape design field, we call like the contractor landscape. You know, a contractor builds a house and they put like X number of trees out front and they put a shrub bed and that's the landscape. You know, and then when you have a landscape designer come in and enhance that, that's the special, that's the specialist. That's what makes the home, you know, individual and special and different from the, from the landscape next door. So that's what we try to do. That's what we try to do. So, so pet peeves, maybe, maybe I see something that's just a little bit mundane, or maybe I see a design that doesn't have a whole lot of unity. So there'll be like maybe a tree over here on the right and a tree over here on the left. And there's not nothing in between that connects the light that makes it actually a design. So in, in lighting design, you don't want to have these big black voids in the middle of the design. You want something that flows. And a good way to do that is to, if you have your tree on the left, if you have some, what I call ground plane lighting, something on the ground, like a path light that lights up the planting beds and things like that, you can kind of carry the lighting design over to that next vertical element, the tree. And then you've got some unity. And you can also do that with a, putting just a very little bit of lighting on the facade of the house, on the front of the house, so that you haven't, it doesn't look like you've forgotten the house, you know, that, that the house is the face of the, of the whole landscape and the home. So, um, so yeah, sometimes I see light, lighting that just hasn't really come together in a unified way. Definitely I see lighting that's been neglected for some time. So it may have started out to be a nice design, but over the years, you know, it lost some of that, that edge to it. I like that connectivity point that you have, that it shouldn't just be one spotlight here and then one way over there. So I like that concept. How about you, Tony? Any pet peeves or signs that um, maybe it's not the most professional installation? Yeah, I really, I really couldn't agree more with Karen in, in the general sentiment. I think that one pet peeve of mine when I look at like a lighting design is if I see something that is just very formulaic, something, a design that is just very cookie cutter, like it looks as if whoever was responsible for it was just kind of phoning it in and just kind of, well, here's a tree and here's like a path. And so we've got some path lights and up lights and then we're done. And I think that like one of the ways that we differentiate ourselves is really trying to uh, make each and every design just incredibly beautiful and special. And you can really tell the difference uh, in a situation where somebody's just kind of applied just a formula to your landscape and it's just, it's just very mundane uh, versus a design where people have actually just gone and created something that is beauty, beautiful and has certain elements uh, that are unique to it only to your garden. And that's something that we really strive for as a company. 
what elements would you say most residences need? So if you have steps in the front, you might want to do some type of rail lighting or something like that. What would you consider a bare minimum for lighting in a landscape? Sure. And I think, you know, I mean, there's the kind of physical safety factor, right? And you have to have those, but we kind of think in terms of layers of light. And so you might have one layer of light that is highlighting, um, that is uplighting the various different elements of the landscape. So being trees, the facade, those areas. And then we have another layer of light that's about downlighting. It might provide a little more service light, some functional lighting, getting uh, light on the pathways and the steps and those type of areas where you certainly have to have light from a safety perspective. But then we like to go a little bit further with like another layer of light that might be something that kind of creates intrigue in the design. So you might have like a single pendant hung you know, at one end of the garden that you see as you enter in a path or you walk up a stairway and just see that point of light that you can uh, walk to and just kind of invokes a certain amount of imagination to the viewer as they enter into the landscape. So we really try and do stuff like that. And that really kind of differentiates the the design and the clients really, I think, notice and really appreciate that kind of uh, unique experience. So that pendant in the distant that draws you into the landscape, do you have other examples of things that might add character or maybe whimsy to a garden landscape with lighting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there are just so many different ways that you can do it. Uh, you might have a beautiful detail on a rail, uh, like we were mentioning, or you might have like a linear LED curve that creates kind of motion in the landscape. You could graze a wall or brick or something that has a beautiful material and texture so that you can kind of call out and feel and experience that texture visually uh, as you go through the landscape. Karen, any thoughts of maybe some touches to personalize your lighting? So I think that really, really depends on the the home and what's going on in the garden. And I think that that the whole conversation with the client is really important there uh, to find out what they really love and appreciate about their garden, to find out how they use their garden, you know, if they're entertaining with their garden, to find out what the what the main focal angles vision angles, focal angles are. So uh, especially right now with the pandemic, the, the rear terrace has become really important. And the the probably the side yard where guests have been entering has become really important. So that's goes back to Tony's point about, you know, on a side yard, you might have a little little arbor that where you enter the garden and you put a little hanging fixture there. And that's uh, it's just a charming little touch, and you do that on on the home of someone that has a pergola. On another house where maybe they the terrace bleeds over into the backyard, that's pretty common. Um, maybe it's a very kind of a squarish, boxed-in kind of backyard with a board fence all around it. Well, you can make something out of that fence by lighting the fence. Um, almost any fence that has some texture detail on it that may look rather kind of plain Jane in the daytime becomes very interesting in the evening when you light it and, and because you pick up the colors and the texture. And if you have planting materials in the front of it, you um, kind of like backlight that, all the, the variegations in the shrubs and the, and the trees and things. So that's how I would treat one landscape different from another. I'd look for those 
components of the landscape that make that yard special. And um, we've had a lot of fun with some newer fixtures and some different ideas that that get back to that fence. It's just kind of a kind of a funny, crazy left out part of the landscape and that, you know, you've got a big fence that's kind of big and squarish, but you could do something interesting with that. So that's been fun. Of course, a, a water feature or art in the landscape, that's kind of pretty obvious. But some things that are very simple are, for example, when you're in, in the front in the front yard and you approach the front door and and of course, on that major pathway, you're going to have landscape. You're going to have some path lights or downlights. But there's oftentimes there's just this little secondary path that goes off to the right or the left with some flagstones in the grass, and it's kind of nice. Even though you know your guests at night may not be using that path, it's kind of nice to put a couple little path lights along there just to give the impression that there's something down that path. You know, there's a little bit of a little bit of like mystery or wonder in the landscape and the whole thought of like, maybe there's more to the story. So that's kind of, you know, it's kind of a fun thing to do. And I think clients really appreciate and they get into that and they, they, they understand that. Yeah. So important and entertaining to have appropriate light level, not glaring, but, you know, enough to be able to see and see each other. Oh yeah, totally, totally. You know, so, so when Tony's talking about layers of light, we also try to like make some of those layers like go away at times. It's just like inside your house, you know, sometimes you've got, you've got task lighting, you want the whole kitchen to be lit up or whatever the living room to lit up. And sometimes you just want it really nice and soft. So on a, on a rear terrace, you might have some lighting from the eaves. That's great if you're entertaining like a big party of strangers, for example, and you want everybody else to see each other. But if you're out there by yourself, you want to be able to cut those eve lights off and have something nice and quiet. And one thing that's become more and more popular in the pandemic, I think, is that kind of bistro lighting that you see in cafes. I guess people miss the, the cafe, you know, the whole cafe experience, and they want to create that in their backyard. So it is kind of fun and and fun to do and and it's a little bit specific to the way the architecture of the house is on the back sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't but it's just like another layer of light you know you can have a lot of light back there but you need that kind of flexibility and the control to like tone it down when you want just a intimate maybe you just want it dark back there you know so we try to make it flexible like that and that's the way people want to use their lighting that's the way they want to appreciate their lighting and to backtrack a little bit for the bistro lighting, you're talking about those overhead strands of clear bulbs, yeah. not not yeah. like Christmas lights. Exactly. Yeah. The, the clear bulbs you see in cafes. And we found like one of the very most important things about bistro lights is the ability to dim them down because everybody's got their own sensitivity. Sometimes those can be very, very bright. And if they're low, so much, you know, even more so. So we always have a dimmer on those. Same thing with our LED like our linear lighting, you know, the ones under the capstones of a seat wall or something like that. Very important to be able to tone that down. And the toning itself, especially on a seat wall, like on a, on a stone wall or brick wall, the toning really does, you know, bringing the light level down really does enhance the texturization of that material that you're using. You know, when you have a, a really, really bright light, it tends to kind of at night erase the colors in a wall and and you just see the white light but if you have the ability to dim it then you start to see the textures and and really to me that's the only kind of way to kind of way to light a, a stone wall or a brick wall or something that's got texture 
great point about texture. And yeah, if you have some beautiful stone, you definitely want to show that to advantage. Oh, yeah. And speaking of stone, around perhaps a water feature, there's usually you know, some type of stone or border around that. How do you light up a, a water feature? Do you do it with lights inserted inside the water or surrounding it or both? Well, shoot, that totally depends on the water feature because you have like little, you know, you have like koi ponds, you know, with a little fountain mm -hmm. in the middle of it. And that's something with a deep well of water, maybe, you know, 24 inches or something. And, and that's cool to put a light in the fixture there, I think, because then you get a lot of like, reflection there's maybe a wall behind it or something you've got a lot of this dancing on the wall behind it same thing with like like kind of an artesian fountain that might come into that well and so that's a great way to do that but then you've got a feature that is maybe like a a big urn that stands you know 28 or 30 inches off the ground and there's just a spout coming out the top of it with you know like you've seen those like the, the the well water is actually underneath the grade. It's kind of like what people who have little children want in their landscape because they don't want to they want to reduce the risk of you know an accident. Yeah, sometimes those um, are called pondless water features. There you go, pondless yeah. water feature. That right, that's right. And often it's if you can possibly get a light from above, I think that really works well. Some of them come with a light inside the urn itself, so it's just like that little bubbler that's lit. And that's a cool effect. And sometimes if you can do a combination of lighting the urn itself, because that it may have color, you know, it might be a beautiful blue or something like that or have a beautiful shape. So if you can do mo both lighting the urn or the, the itself and something inside the well of the urn, that's really a cool look. Yeah, that's really nice. And that's that kind of thing that really, you know, when you're sitting on the terrace, that, that's where all your attention goes. Yeah, water in the garden is so beautiful. Oh, and the sound of it. The sound mm -hmm. of it's so, so important. It's just like the sound of crunching of gravel, you know, when you walk across a, uh, down a gravel path and you hear that soft, like, psh, 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 you know. Mm -hmm. Sound, lighting, it's, lighting, you know, lighting is a sound in itself. You know, when we we do a little bit of canopy lighting, that's where you light the, the bigger trees in the backyard. And, and what happens back there is that you see the motion in the leaves. You know, when the wind blows, you see the leaves fluttering, you see that. And that's, that's what I call motion in lighting. It's kind of a similar effect with a, you know, with the gas lantern on the front of the house. It's not just providing lighting, it's that, that little motion that's kind of like such a life. It's just like there's there's almost a breath in it. Anyway, that's a little bit over the top, isn't it? Sorry, Kathy. <laughs> Sorry. I don't no, not at all. I was gonna say that many people use flames for meditation and focusing on. There you go. So yeah, I could see the little gas flame or a little gas fireplace outside could definitely yeah. be a focal point that way. Oh, it's very much like water, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's very much like watching the motion of the water and, and as far as meditation goes. It's, that's so true. And how about some examples of great trees to light in the landscape? So there's trees with beautiful architecture in just the way they grow, say like a crepe myrtle. Are there other favorite trees, varieties that you all like to specifically pinpoint in the landscape? Yeah, one that comes to mind would be like a like a large Japanese maple. You know, we uh, one that we recently did and we featured on a tour, a landscape lighting tour that we did. I guess this fall was just this splendid uh, maple that was in perfect um, 
coloring from uh, the fall leaf change. And it was this glowing orange tree that we were uh, fortunate enough to be there on the the perfect day to see it. And it was this beautifully lit uh, and it really, really was just a beautiful highlight in the garden. So that's one that comes to mind. And one of my favorites probably is a red bud. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's one of our native trees. And it's got these like flowy branches that kind of crisscross and they out they stretch out horizontally. And that's another one, like Tony said, is like as as you go through the seasons, the colors change on a red bud and the leaves are heart shaped, you know, what's not to like about that. But you know, of course, one of the, our bigger trees and native trees is the American elm and you know, those are the trees that you see when you're driving into Washington along the tidal basin with these flowing arms that they're just like the motion of the, the, the it's just an iconic shape. So that's, those are two of my favorites. And how about the bark texture as well, using the light to maybe highlight some of that? Yeah, that's totally, that's totally something that also depends on the light, the level of the light again, that that if you can do something really soft on that, like, you know, a river birch is the one that a lot of people know. And it's pretty classic. That's just got such, you know, the bark on a river birch just kind of rolls back on itself. And, and there's white in it and there's gray and there's red. And when you light it, all these shadows like come apparent. And that's one that's a really cool one. But then again, something like a, um, oh gosh, you know, the dogwood that comes from Japan, Kusa. Yeah. Kusa has really cool bark too. And that's a little bit patchy like an, an American sycamore. So, you know, you'll have these white, white or silvery expanses and then you'll have some patches of red in it. So that's another one. Uh, but yeah, that's that when you've got a tree like that, that's got a really cool bark and maybe it's got some really cool branch structure or multiple stems. That's that's something worth lighting. And that's one thing that I really love about lighting the trees. And that's kind of one of my favorite things. I've always just like really reveled in being in the trees and and appreciating the trees. It's like most people, they don't really know what they've got in their landscape. You know, they buy a house and there's some trees in the landscape. But when you come in and you like notice those really special trees that they have and they they learn to like appreciate the, the size of their Japanese maple or something, you know, they go off and they brag to their friends about that later. You know, they didn't know they had a special tree. And that rings, really brings me a lot of joy, I have to say, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And another form of tree I was thinking that's beautiful in the landscape to have lit maybe are the weeping ones, like our weeping hygen cherries on the tidal basin and some of those other kind of drooping or weeping forms. Well, that's a tricky one for me. And <laughs> it depends on... I, that one really depends on the the quality of the pruning, you know, as well as as well as those the little bitty Japanese maples that are very horizontal, you know. Uh, with start with the Japanese maples, you know, if someone has like come in and pruned that properly, so there's little cutouts, you know. Sometimes they get really really bushy, and you put a light under them that just traps the light, and you don't see the beautiful infrastructure of the branching. And those are very convoluted and wavy too. So it depends if you've got somebody that knows how to prune one of those and makes these little voids so you can look, the light comes in and you can see that branch work. That really works well. And with the weeping cherry, it's the same thing. Some of them look like fabulous, fabulous in the summertime. But in the wintertime, what you might see is the trunk and then where the graft was. 
but that's pretty specific to landscape designers. Kathy, you know what I'm talking about. So Mm -hmm. that's another thing that goes back to the very yard. You don't have a formula. You got to go in there and work with the trees. Oftentimes I've, I've taken a tree and like, well, let's just leave this one out. It looks great in the daytime, but you know, maybe we just like, it looks a little bit scary at night. I don't tell clients scary because you know, they're like, what? My tree tree is scary. Cause they love it. You know, they Mm -hmm. love it. But if we leave it out, sometimes it's better. Very true. And yeah, sometimes a tree silhouette just doesn't work sometimes. Right. And maybe different times of year and different lighting. Exactly. And so I was going to ask about the opposite end of the spectrum from a dark backyard, which is uh, if you're in an urban location and you, if you have a lot of street lighting around you kind of flooding in, is there a way to mitigate that a little bit? Well, hey, Tony, I know I've been doing a lot of talking, but do you mind if I take this one and then it'll be your turn? Sure, go ahead. Okay, good, because here's what I've noticed. Here's what I've noticed. And this could be getting better because DC is trying to, like, phase out their old, like, silver halogen lights that are really super blue and kind Mm. of goony, you know, and go into LEDs that are are more warm, like a 2700 Kelvin um, that we're used to inside of our homes, you know. But what I've noticed is if you've got a lot of that street lighting that has that bluish cast, you can do some warm lighting in the front, even though the light is like, you know, if it's like daylight out there, you know, and it warms it up in there, you know, so it makes it more feel like residential and rather than like that coldness of the street. And then there's other thing that kind of happens is that sometimes there'll be a, a, a larger tree in the front yard with the street light up behind it. And at night, that tree was cast a dark shadow over the front yard. So even though the street light right out there, your front walkway may in, be, be in the shadow. So that's kind of what we try and work with in the front yard. That's a great way to describe it is that cold and that warm light um, and to liven it up a little bit. So Tony, we'll turn to you to ask some of our maintenance questions. So my first one will be, uh, what is the best time of year to design the lighting and install it? Would the, that be in the wintertime when you can see everything bare? Uh, the best time to design and install? Well, I, I don't know that there is necessarily a best. There are bad times, and that's like, I mean, in the middle of February is not the best time to install a landscape lighting system because uh, the ground is frozen. So that is typically uh, challenging, but to design a system, you know, it's just different. You know, you're going to design a little in a different way, say in uh, the summer than you might design in the winter, but the, there, and there's just different challenges. And when you're doing any design, you need to be thinking about four seasons so it isn't as if there's like one season that's the best, but there is, there are bad seasons to, to install. And that's for sure. I mean, like in the middle of August in DC, you know, nobody really wants to be installing a landscape lighting system. We certainly do it, but mm-hmm. it, it's a little more, you know, it's a little more problematic just because of the heat. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and that's when you want the long, uh, cooler evenings, if it cools down at all in the evening, that is. Indeed. So my next maintenance question would be a about working around it or installing the line. So you obviously have to have some type of electrical source to the outside and you're using, as you said, low voltage LED light systems. So um, they have their own um, lines, correct? And not hooked into um, something else. 
Uh, yeah, so basically the way that a system would work is you have a transformer and the transformer connects to your line voltage uh, at the house. And then you have lines that come off of that and go to all of the individual fixtures. And so we work those lines into the landscape in a strategic way uh, that can help minimize maintenance, uh, minimize potential cut lines down the road. We do that particularly by running many of the lines just along kind of boundaries of hardscape. So if you have a walkway, you might have the lines run along the edge of the walkway where it's very unlikely that people are going to be digging or along the foundation of a house, another area that's less frequently uh, modified just in the general course of maintaining a landscape. And so that's how the system generally works. And do you have your own electricians to install that? Or do you have the homeowner do that exchange and then you hook into it? Yeah, we, we do. So we have a, a team of individuals who provide pretty much all of the stuff that we need for the system to be installed. We uh, There's obviously a, a range of kind of specialty items that we'll occasionally contract out. So for example, we'll occasionally do gas sconces. And you know, we obviously don't have a plumber or a, a gas fitter on hand, but you know, we'll coordinate and work with, uh, with the appropriate you know, contractor on something like that. And oftentimes it, you know, we can have a beautiful custom result that clients are just thrilled with. So I assume that the homeowner or somebody is supplied with a map of where all those underground lines are so that should they want to add more to the landscape, they know that they're not digging and hitting them. Yeah, so we don't really have a huge amount of trouble with uh, people with cut lines. Uh, the, the lines go in pretty deep on the front end. If there's a landscaping plan or, a, you know, it's pretty easy with Google Maps these days to mark up, you know, those types of uh, documents and provide the homeowner with that. And so, yeah, we, we, would, we definitely do that upon request and as needed. And any other tips for working lighting into a landscape, maybe to add a little more drama or mystery? Drama and mystery. Yeah. So I like you know, to use pendants. I mean, pendants can really kind of create that kind of intrigue uh, that you don't necessarily see elsewhere. I like, I like to see a pendant on a long, delicate, thin chain, something made of uh, solid copper uh, that looks kind of old or antique and in such a way that you might look at it and think, how, how did that get there? Or like, how long has that been there? And like, you know, wow, it looks kind of like a kind of almost magical to kind of see that out in the, in the landscape, just delicately placed in a tree. Uh, so that's something that I really like. Well, it's, a, yeah, it's kind of funny you bring up drama and mystery. And here's what I've noticed. In the front yard, people don't want drama and mystery. <laughs> you know, they want like the street view, you know, when they come home, they want like everything to look normal, safe, comfort of home. Uh, they want their guests to feel, you know, kind of the same way. It's the backyard that they want, you know, something a little more soft and, and that's where they might want the drama. But drama is a tricky thing. Uh, I think that here's some, here's what I've noticed about art in the landscape in the, in the backyard is that lighting a sculptor or something like that is almost like a Rembrandt painting. And, you know, if you recall from Rembrandt, he does a lot of like one side of the face is totally in the dark and the other side of the face is, you know, has lit, lit up and you can see the character of the face. And so sometimes with sculpture, you don't want to light the whole thing. You want, 
you want to create that kind of a kind of an effect. So that's what I that's what I kind of like to look for. Is some trees are like that. Some trees uh, have really something special and dramatic about them, and some some don't. Sometimes you get uh, I don't know if it's a mystique or a drama, but sometimes you get you get you get a like there's something about uniformity and the rhythm of light. So that if you've got a row of hornbeams in the backyard. Uh, if you like light every other tree or something like that, you've just got this rhythm that's going back there. And that's really important. And that, to me, anytime you add rhythm in the mat, in a landscape, it sounds like music, it sounds like motion. And you feel in, you feel motion and you feel emotion with rhythm. That is a lovely way to describe it, Karen. And I want to thank both you and Tony for sharing some of the art and science between uh, the two of you about outdoor lighting. Uh, any final thoughts and also how can listeners contact you? Let's start with Tony. Well, thank you so much for having us, Kathy. It's certainly been a pleasure to describe some of the things that you know are very important to uh, to me, this company is something that I certainly love, and I'm just always thrilled to be able to provide a a, a beautiful lighting design and installation to any of my clients. If you want to find us and learn a little bit more about the the systems that uh, we're installing and some of the designs that we've done, you can visit our website, which is uh, www.olsonweaver.com. And that's O-L-S-O-N-W-E-A-V-E-R.com. So feel free to uh, to check us out there. Great. And we'll have that link in the show notes as well. Any final thoughts, Karen? Well, Kathy, I just really want to thank you for having us. I have to say one thing about entrepreneurs. They just love to talk business. They just love to talk about <laughs> the business because you have to be enthusiastic to be an entrepreneur. It just has got to be a part of you. And so I really appreciate that. The one other thing I want to say about residential lighting, which is, is something that's really, really, uh, I've just loved doing is that, you know, you get invited into people's homes, you know, and, and that's a very special p- place. It's a personal place. And, and it's just thrilling to me to get an opportunity to see what people, you know, like what they really appreciate in their art on the walls and in their books and things like that. And it's just really special to me to be a part of a project that, you know, that, brings kind of a joy into a, a person's home. So anyway, again, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a, you've done a great job. You're a great interview and I appreciate that. Thank you, Karen. And thank you, Tony. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Winter Aconite Plant Profile Winter Aconite, Aranthus hyamalis, is a spring ephemeral that appears and disappears in the late winter garden. It is a member of the buttercup family and is native to Southern and Eastern Europe. Winter aconite is also classified as a minor bulb in comparison to the larger and showier daffodils, tulips, and lilies in our gardens. Even though it is quite small, it still packs a punch with its bright yellow flowers in the bleak winter landscape. 
It prefers to grow under deciduous trees such as oaks and likes rich humusy soils. It can tolerate wetter locations than most bulbs. It is a great source of nectar for the first foraging bees of the season. On overcast days, the flowers stay closed. Then on clear days, they open up to the sun's warming rays. In the fall, soak the tubers overnight, then plant them an inch deep. They will emerge several months later and then every year after that. It does naturalize and spread a bit. You can dig and divide to move them around right after they finish blooming. There is an invasive look-alike, Lesser Celandine, Ficaria verna. However, that plant blooms later in the season and does not have the Elizabethan collar foliage at the base of the flower that winter aconites do. This is one tough plant. Winter aconite doesn't mind being covered in ice or snow or being zapped by freezing temperatures. Winter aconite, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, we were blessed with some milder temperatures and I've seen my first crocus popping up, lots of daffodil foliage emerging, and many snowdrops. Listeners have been asking where to source some of the native plants we've been talking about on this podcast, so I thought I'd share some upcoming events and some sources. So on Saturday, March 26th, is the 35th annual LAR Native Plant Symposium at the U.S. National Arboretum. This year's theme of native plants is Forces for Conservation and Community. The symposium presents subject matter experts on ecological, botanical, and horticultural advancements in a day-long virtual program. So in addition to that, they also have an in-person annual native plant sale, and that's Sunday, March 27th from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. That's located at the Arboretum's Meadow Road adjacent to the Herb Garden entrance. It's one of my favorite places to source and buy native plants. Looking ahead, you'll want to save the date for the 7th annual Mountain Maryland Native Plant Festival on May 14th in New Germany State Park. You can register now for that at mdflora.org. It offers a large variety of native plants and nature-themed artwork for sale. Scheduled programs and activities highlight native plants and biodiversity. There's local experts there to answer your questions on native plants and other conservation topics. There's a new website you might want to check out for native plant sourcing called Native Plants for the DMV, and that's at nativeplantsdmv.com and that has some lists of local nurseries and other sources. Past guest Sherry Wilson has a blog all about native plants, Nuts for Natives Gardening for the Chesapeake, and you can find that online at nutsfornatives.com. You can also see our many native plant profiles at our YouTube channel, youtube.com Washington Gardener Magazine, and of course, read Barry Glick's native plant column in our Washington Gardener Magazine. Happy gardening!
celebrate spring with four exciting gardening books and their authors. This free online party takes place on Thursday, March 24th at 7 p.m. Eastern. It is sponsored by National Garden Bureau and Garden Communicators. During this live webinar, you'll get to virtually meet the four authors and learn some of their best gardening tips. Those authors are Sean and Allison McManus, Christy Wilhelmy, Raphael Delalo, and Tony Gattoni. Attendees will also have a chance to win one of three gardening giveaways. Register for this free webinar at ngb.org, select the Education tab, and scroll down to Webinars. See you there. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen, Terry Spite, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space, while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. The Urban Garden, 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City, comes out this spring. You can pre-order it now at Amazon.com and Bookshop.org. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.